Good morning. So glad to be here with you this morning. I want you to just take a second and look around at your table. Just take a breath. Look around at your table. Look at all the beautiful faces in this room. Is this a room full of beauty or what? Yay. Wow. It's awesome. So as we begin, let's take a deep breath. You've all made it here. You're here. In spite of everything, <laughs> you're here. That means you have about an, an hour or so, or a couple hours, where you step out of the ordinary day. You step into a sacred place of just being present. You don't have to worry about anything right now. Nothing is expected of you. Nothing is demanded. All that's, that is available to you is the friendships of the people that you're sitting with in this room and the fact that God, in God's great kindness, is among us and with us and, and inviting us into a deeper relationship with whatever we do. So that's all your job today is just to be present. And isn't that wonderful? Just for a little while. And then, and I would invite you just to take a basket and take all your worries and all your concerns and all the things you have to do and put them over here in this basket. And you can get them later. As you leave this place, you can pick your basket up and just take them right back. No one wants to take them from you. But for a couple of hours, we want to be together without that basket of woe. <laughs> This story that we're about to embark on today is a little story in the midst of a grand sweep of a story. What have you been through since the beginning of this story? You've been through creation. You've been through floods. You've been through deception. You've been through betrayal. You've been through God's providence. You have had every single trope from every Hollywood film ever made and every book ever written. Do you realize that? You can hardly find a story that does not have its basis in these stories. And these stories sometimes are borrowed from other stories that were even thousands of years beyond that. That's how it works in this grand sweep of history. And I say history really carefully because this book and the books of the Bible were never meant to be historical documents. So people argue about how could this be this and this be this, and the, the writers and the readers and the oral tradition of, this, of, of the Bible were never concerned with those details because it was never meant to record history. It was never meant to be a book of science. It was never meant to prove anything. What the Bible was all about was a record, a history of the relationship of God with human beings. And that is told in story form. It's told in poetry. It's told in songs. It's told in grand sweeping tales. It's told in narrative. And we are able to look back and see this grand sweep of history of how God, how since humans recorded history and began to think of, think and articulate how is it that they're in relationship with God, that's what these stories are all about. 
What is the relationship that human beings have with God? Now, you've been through this grand sweep, like I just said, all this stuff that's happened. And then we come to chapter 26. And chapter 26 is very unique from what's been before and what's coming after. So how do I create a scene for you to be able to walk in to chapter 26? Well, I'd like for you to bear with me, trust me. This is a little trust walk. And I'd like for you just to get into a prayerful uh, uh, attitude, eyes closed, take a deep breath, hands on the table. You're not worried about anything. You're free for an hour or so. And I want you to let my words guide you into an image. Imagine that you're standing in a beloved room. Take note of all the beautiful things that fill the shelves, that adorn the walls, the windows that frame the light and the sky, the comfortable places to sit and rest. Imagine that for just a few moments. Look around, take it in. And you're seated comfortably in your favorite chair. But you feel compelled to leave this room It's hard because you find such comfort here. But you know you must go to another room. A room that you've never been in before. So you approach the door to the room, but you hesitate. You reach out and put your hand on the knob. You don't know what kind of room you will go into. You don't know what will be there. You feel a little anxious to leave. You feel anxious to leave behind what is so achingly familiar and comforting. But it's time. So you pull open the door and you step into the liminal space. Liminal space. That moment between what has been and what will be the letting go, and the reaching out. And you rest on that spot just for a moment in the in-between. What has been and what will be, the letting go and the reaching out. And you look up and the hinges of the door catch your eye. They're smooth and well-used. And for some reason, they bring you courage. And then you step through the door. And we come back to be together in this place. This chapter in Genesis, chapter 26, is the hinge in this story. It's the hinge from one story, one dramatic story of Abraham and all of the beginnings, and it hinges into the next long, the longest, longest continuous story in the Bible, which is the story of Jacob. 
Longest continuous story. We have the story of Isaac is one chapter, chapter 26. The story of Jacob is 26 through 50. And from Abraham, wherever you were, up to this point. This is the hinge moment. And, and it only takes one chapter to hinge us from one story to the other. But there has to be a little space. There has to be a breathing moment in between those stories. And you'll notice that this particular chapter is set up in a way that allows you to take a breath from all the drama, from all that's been happening, all that's come before. It's been like a tidal wave of events of the, of the history of humankind with, in relationship with God. And now we come to a resting point and we, we feel ourselves stop for just a moment. So Abraham, if Abraham can be summed up, Abraham is a story about promise. It's the promises of God, right? God has made promises to Abraham. Abraham was this nomad. Abraham wasn't a Jew, just like Jesus wasn't a Christian. Do you see what I mean? There was no Christian before Jesus. Jesus didn't follow himself. There was no Jew before Abraham. They were just a Bedouin people traveling and, and all in it, honestly, in secondary, in, in some other uh, writings, you should hear what they say about these people. In these ancient writings, they say they were dirty, they were uncivilized, we don't like to have them in our town. This is what some other uh, civilizations in their writings talk about, about this family of Bedouins that we see as the foundation of, our, of who we are today. So this Abraham is made promises by God, and Abraham begins this long series of obedience, deception, everything that is imaginable in the human, uh, in the human experience. And God stays with Abraham every step of the way. So Abraham is a story of promise, but it's also the story of covenant. Covenant is an agreement. It's, it's an agreement between people but it's not like a it's not like a buying a car agreement where buying a car agreement is more like we're going to give you this car and you're going to give us this money but with god a covenant is god entering into an agreement that that god is your god and that you will respond to god in this way but god doesn't ever change in that covenant even when we don't obey, even when we don't live up to our part of the covenant, God doesn't change. That's what makes it a covenant, because it's God-inspired. So Abraham is a story of covenant and promise. So Isaac is the story of promise, because that's carried on all the way through the New Testament, all the way to the end of the New Testament. And what's after the New Testament? Do you know? Life. Life, living out all of these promises. And then it just continues. And life continues, and we continue living in these promises. So the promise never goes away. It's always there. And the, the covenant never goes away. It's always there. God living up to being God. And so the other part of Isaac, the other part of Isaac's story is blessing. 
That's what we'll hear in this Isaac story. And we've already heard a little bit about it. We've already heard a little bit about Esau and Jacob, and we've already gotten a little bit of a, of a trailer about what's coming, what's on the other side of this story. But now we're resting just for a moment. So if Abraham is a story of promise and covenant, and Isaac is a story of promise and blessing, then Jacob, which is to come, is the story of promise and redemption. But that's for another story. That's for another day. That's for Jack next week. So right now, I'd like for us to uh, listen to the story. And what I want you to do while, uh, while the story is being read, it's, it's pretty short, but I want you to listen for things that sound familiar, things that you've heard about in other places. I want you to pay attention to what's the feel of it? What feeling do you get from this particular reading? And, and, and what are some assumptions that you make? And what are some questions that you have about all of this that's going on? So let's read this resting place. This is Isaac and Abimelech. Have you heard that name before, Abimelech? You've heard that name before. Already you're aware of something that's going on that sounds familiar. Now, there was a famine in the land. Sound familiar? Besides the former famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar, to King Abimelech of the Philistines. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Settle in the land that I shall show you. Reside in this land as an alien, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your descendants, I will give all these lands, and I will fulfill the oath that I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all of these lands, and all the nations of the earth shall gain blessing for themselves through your offspring. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, uh, she's my sister. Sound familiar? For he was afraid to say, my wife, thinking, or else the men of the place might kill me for the sake of Rebekah because she is attractive in appearance. I know all of your husbands think the same thing. When Isaac had been there a long time, King Abimelech of the Philistines looked out of a window and saw him fondling his wife, Rebekah. Now, before, you be, before you're shocked, let me just say that this word fondling comes from the same root that's used when Sarah discovers she's pregnant. What does Sarah do when she discovers she's, or she's going to be pregnant? She laughs, right? So this is from the same root. So it could be a, something as simple as they had a private moment and they were laughing together. So Abimelech called for Isaac and said, So, she is your wife? Why then did you say she's my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I thought I might die because of her. And Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife. Boy, does that say a lot about the, statue, the status of women. And you would have brought guilt upon us. 
So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall be put to death. Isaac sowed seed in that land, and in the same year reaped a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich. He prospered more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped up and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of his father Abraham. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us. You have become too powerful for us. So Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of his father Abraham. For the Philistines had stopped him up after the death of Abraham. They want you to know that. They've said it twice now. And he gave them the names that his father had given them, meaning the wells. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herders of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herders, saying, This water is ours. So he called the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. So he must have found water. So he called it Sitna. He moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So this is the odd thing. They didn't fight over this one, so what did they do? Does it say, so they pitched their tents and they settled there. No, it says immediately. They didn't quarrel over it. So he called it Rehoboth, saying, Now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. And from there he went up to Beersheba. And that very night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you and will bless you and make your offspring numerous for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there, called on the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there. And there, guess what? Isaac's servants dug a well. Then Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahusath, his advisor, and Philco, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to him, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, Now, now, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. Why? Well, so we say, let there be an oath between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, so that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and they drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac set them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug, and they said to him, guess what? We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, that's their son, he married Judith, daughter of Beri the Hittite, and Basemath, daughter of Elon the Hittite. 
and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. They just had to add that little tag on as a trailer to what's to come. So I think we have people with microphones who can take your question. And if first of all, I want to just get from you. I know this is going to be a lot of running around you guys, but I really want to hear from you. What did you notice about this chapter? What was something that you just noticed about it? Water. Water. <laughs> Boy, you got that right. You have to have water, and especially where they were living. So that was very important to everyone. Yes. It was almost like saying, we struck gold. Yeah. It was like, we struck gold. Okay. Water. Okay. Okay. Um, from my own experience, we used to have a, an orange grove out in Palma Valley, and we had to dig a new well because the old wells weren't uh, sufficient. <clears throat> And it is really, really hard to get to the water, you know, like 300 feet down. And I remember we had a video of going down, 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 down to get to the, eventually get to the water. So, you know, I can so totally relate to how hard this might have been. And you know, to keep doing these, um, doing it over and over again. You know, I, I can't even imagine if it took a couple years or what it was that um, was necessary for them to do that, you know? So anyway, that just, just an okay. option. Thank you. What else? What else did you notice about this chapter? It seems like Isaac had no challenges. Everything he touched, you know, turned to gold, if you will. Yes! Oh, a smart lady over there. His life is like, compared to where you've been with these other lives, everything he touches is gold or water. And yes, maybe he has a few challenges, but every time it just seems to be resolved, doesn't it? It's, it just seems so easy. Life seems to be a, a Hallmark movie for, for Isaac at this point compared to where we've been. So great. Yeah, so life, you know, Isaac, things are turning out well. We've got this issue of a, a, a water. And what else? What feelings do you get from this? What what if you were reading the story? How would you feel like? What would you look at their lives like? A little bit like father, like son. He did the same thing with Rebecca that Abraham did with Sarah. Yeah, yeah. He committed kind of the same kind of unethical behavior, really, and uh, and and got the same response. Except there's a little bit of a difference in this one, and. Uh, um, the difference is, in the first two times, because this is the third time that this has happened, in the first two times, God intervened. God came to the king, or God came to him, and he said, you know, don't, don't you touch that woman, and blah, 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 blah. Now, in this one, how did, they, how did this come to be? How did the king find out in this story? Yeah, he saw them. He saw them together, and they were obviously intimate. They were laughing together or whatever. 
And um, so there's not, God doesn't intervene into that story in this. It's just a, it's a very, this happened, this happened, this happened. So it's a very, uh, uh, you know, pointed, very pointed story. So what else do you get from this story? What about, how do you, how, how do you understand God in this story? What is God's character? How would you sum up God's character from what you're reading in this story? Well, God reiterates to Isaac the promise that he made to Abraham. And he has shown that he has done all these things and that he will continue. And he says that you will be the father of many nations. And so he is affirming and proving that God, God is telling Isaac, I've done all this and I'm going to continue to do all this. So it helps Isaac to believe. So what did that make us understand about God? He's faithful. Right. That's right. We understand from this chapter all that's happened and what this chapter is saying, hey, it's all okay. You're going to be okay. Even in this massive his historical looking back, sweeping across the ages, we have this little chapter that says it's all okay. God's got you. God is faithful. One thing I wanted to add to this, the very last bit, which we haven't got to yet, but when Esau marries the pagans, and it's Jacob that has the blessings, and that that's what carries on God's promise, not Esau, and how when Jacob got Esau to give him his blessing with the stew and all of that, and then at the end, when, when the trickery was, when, when Jacob did receive the blessing from, from Isaac, that carries on mm -hmm. the lineage that God promised Isaac. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. What else? Are there other things that you come away from this particular chapter with? This hinge chapter that takes us from one to the other. Now, you may, I mean, it may not occur to you or it may occur to you that Abimelech must be a really old person if you take this literally. But you can also, in the stories of the Bible, the, the stories of the Bible are more about what's underneath it. What's underneath, what's the, what is compelling God to do what God is doing? What is compelling human beings to do what human beings are doing? We don't have to get lost or mired in the facts. So the, word, the name Abimelech, if it were historically true, it wouldn't have been the same Abimelech. It would have been somebody that was a generations down named Abimelech. But it could also just be whoever was in charge, whoever was the king. Whoever was the person that could throw them off the land, who could come to them and say, get off, get off the territory. So we have to, we don't need to get kind of bogged down in like, well, what about this name and what about that name? Because that's not the point of what the writer is trying to make. So that's kind of important to understand too. And another thing that's really interesting, I think, it really changed and revolutionized my way of thinking about the Old Testament. Many, many, many Years ago, when in the dinosaur era, when I was a young child, uh, when I was in uh, when I was in seminary, is the fact that very rarely in the Old Testament is the story about one person about one person, because they didn't think that way. 
They wrote in stories where this person represented their tribe, represented their people. And so when we hear the story of Jacob, we're, I want you to imagine that the story, this story is playing out. And how would that look if it was playing out across the, all of the people? It takes on a very different feel. You don't have to get hung up with that, but it's something to consider. That this is not the story of Jacob and Esau. This is the story of a nation being forged. And out of God's will for the world to be redeemed. So um, anyways, any other things? Any other thoughts or feelings that come out of that? So we have, what do you think? We have three stories of of uh, these men who think their wives are so beautiful that, uh, two men anyway, that think their wives are so beautiful that they're going to be killed because other people want them. Either that's the way they did things then, you know, or what is, why would it be so important to include three big stories like that about these patriarchs? What would be behind that? What would be the trying to generate what understanding? What are they doing? They are deceiving. Isn't that right? And deception is the heart of the next story and the next story after that. And we also see all of these, ex- ex- all of these elements being played out throughout all of the scriptures, even through the New Testament. Do we see deception in the New Testament? Do we see betrayal? We do. So these, these stories are setting a foundation. They're not, they're not so much, uh, I don't think that they're like, okay, we're going to tell you, you're going to have these stories so that these stories make sense. I think that these stories make sense because we are introduced to how people relate with God and God relates with people through these stories. So, um, so we have deception is something important that the writers and the editors of these stories, the ones who brought them together out of oral history and out of little snippets, want you to know that deception is a, ma- a major player in these stories. So we have this again. And then we have promise. We have God affirming. The interesting thing is, though, uh, if you look at what, what I was thinking was interesting, if you look at one of the uh, verses at the very beginning, it talks about Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws, and that's why I'm going to bless you. So is it because of, of Isaac's obedience? Not so much. Isaac is a good man, and Isaac, uh, apparently, we don't know that much about him follows God's uh, rules, but it really is based on Abraham's faithfulness. Abraham and the people of Abraham on their faithfulness. So we come to so we come to this chapter and we understand that this is the only primary source of material about Isaac. Do you and I wonder, do you know what primary source is? Yeah? Okay. Primary source is something that comes sort of straight from the horse's mouth. It's diaries or it's autobiography. 
It would be like an interview in the, you know, in, in the newspaper from that person. It would be, it would be clo as close as you can get to the actual person or event. Secondary is the people who write about the story, who write about something that they've heard, who make commentary on it. So this particular chapter is the only primary source for Isaac that we have. Everything else we know about Isaac comes from other sources that are talking about Isaac. In chapter 24, Isaac is in a principal actor. That narrative serves to conclude Abraham's story. In chapter 25 and 27, Isaac is not a principal, but serves to introduce us to the Jacob materials. So all the tradition tells us, the only thing that tradition tells us about him is essentially confined to this one narrative, the primary source. So Isaac is primarily remembered. What, what's the first thing you learned in Sunday school about Isaac? Yes, that's the first time we meet Isaac, is when Abraham is taking him up to the mountain and God has said, you have to sacrifice your son, that they, they couldn't believe they were having a son and he was going to be sacrificed. So can you imagine that walk up the mountain? It's like, Dad, where's the goat? You know, and Abraham's like, uh, we'll talk about that when we get to the top of the mountain. Uh, closer to the top, Dad, where's that goat? You know, I can't even imagine. And this story is an incredible story that, that I hope that I know you probably covered so beautifully before, but oh my gosh, this is a, a, an incredible story about Abraham finding out if he was ready for what God had him could do. I mean, God knows. God didn't need to, a test of any kind, but Abraham didn't know if he was up for it. So anyway, that's the first time we meet Isaac. And so what we have primarily is we have Isaac. What we know about Isaac is he's the precious son of a great father. And he is the beguiled father of a scheming son. Those are the two things we know about him from a primary source. So non-primary stories include Isaac as the son who was taken for sacrifice, and he also, it's introduced to us that he was a man of importance, that he was uh, following in, in Father Abraham's traditions. And it only the only thing that primary material says to us is that Isaac is a transition between Abraham and Jacob. He's the hinge. It's, it's not just chapter 26. It's Isaac himself that is the hinge. So he's, but... Isaac, even though he's just the hinge, he presents to us a very, very important theological perspective about a, a particular issue. And the chapter, in this chapter, it's the, an important and distinctive theological perspective about blessing. And blessing is such a big thing in this. And I think as Westerners, it's really hard for us to understand why, for example, when Abraham gives his blessing to Jacob instead, which you'll study later, but why he couldn't give Esau one too. And what was, you know, what was this all about? Well, what we understand is that, that a blessing is not a gift from Abraham. It's not a gift from Isaac. It's a gift from God. The blessings are a gift from God. So 
you, I, it wasn't, Abraham couldn't give another gift from God that wasn't given to him to give. He couldn't take that back. This was God's to give. And so, in, but in this particular chapter, we learn two kind of important things about um, blessings, and we'll get to in just a minute. But I'd like to go back and just do a, just a little bit moment of summary. And that is that we have the primary patriarchal promise is made again, right? And it's not only made again, it's made twice in this little chapter about, and your children will be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. So this is a really important facet that that the, the, the primary source is trying to let the reader know this is a really big deal. God made this promise. And we have the, we have the third presentation of the sister-wife motif, which, which kind of symbolizes deception for us. Deception is the heart of the story. And then there's a series of narratives about the conflict with water. Now, I grew up in a very small farming community in Brawley, California. Not Raleigh, South Carolina, which everybody thinks I'm saying, but Brawley, California. I was born and raised there. And let me tell you, there is no water there, but it is an agricultural, you know, mecca because the water they ship in, which is under big, you know, scrutiny right now, because why should they be using all that water? They're in the desert. Um, so I know that this is water. It's not just going down 300 feet. This is like, this is like striking gold. And this, so the water conflict is a conflict about what gives life. What is life-giving? What must you have to live? And then the conclusion, uh, when he comes to finally to Beersheba, all of these stories, okay, they went out and they stuck their shovel, oh, water, they went out and stuck their shovel, water, 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 water. If you could sum that up in one word, what would one, what would maybe that word be? Yeah, abundance. Abundance. That's right. So this chapter is trying to, is trying to also to say that there is no limit to God's abundance. There is no limit to what God can do in a place that is impossible that this could have happened because they also let us know twice in this little chapter that all of those wells had gone dry, and so they filled them in. All of the wells that Abraham had dug when he was there, they, they don't fill in wells that were still operating in the desert. No, they filled all these wells in because they had gone dry. So what this is saying is, listen, take a breath. God is abundant. God is faithful. God is... Uh, faithfully and steadily walking with you every step of the way. So we come to then what I would like to refer back to just a little bit is about the theology of blessing. So we look at the book of Genesis, and we know that it's about forging a people of God. We've already talked about that. From this Bedouin, uncivilized group of people that never rested in one place, God has decided to forge God's people from these people. And it's laying a foundation for God's intentions towards human, humankind. How is God going to be in relationship with us? And it centers around a newly emerging nation 
that's based on, the nation is based on divine promises. That's what the nation is based on. Abraham says, yes, I'll go. I'll go there and I'll go there, I'll go there. Along the way, he's a very fragile and and, um, uh, fallible person. He's a very human person. But God is steadily with him. And so, and it's based on these divine promises. And this theology also reflects that this is a very, very ancient. These, we're talking thousands and thousands of years. Ancient theology. This theology of blessing. And at this point in their spiritual development, there was a great mixing of their understanding of what, how this works with God. And that was based on their understanding of how it worked with all of these other gods that they had been worshiping since humankind came into any kind of consciousness. Because long before, long before people began to assign to a one god, people had been worshiping other gods. We have archaeological digs of that. Other gods that could perform, I don't believe that. But other gods anyway, gods of the rain, gods of the sun, gods of the ground, gods of the leaf, gods of the bug, gods of this, of that. And always in that theology was, if you are good, you are blessed. If you are bad, you are cursed. So this is where they are in their theology. This is where they are in their theology. And even in this theology, if things went well and you were prosperous or victorious against the enemy, it was because you were good, God was on your side. But if you lost the battle, if you were poor, if you had nothing, then what must be the problem? Is because God isn't nice? You must have done something. That was the theology. You must have done something. You must have done something. And we can see this play out in another book much later on. So um, if you're sick or poor or suffering, it's because you were being punished for something, an infraction against God. Maybe it was something you did. Maybe it was something your child did. Maybe it was something your parents did. You don't know, but somewhere along the line, you've got to repent in order to make uh, to bring back some kind of prosperity for yourself. And, and this theology isn't significantly challenged and maybe until like the 5th century. And what happened in the 5th century? In the 5th century, the people of God, who God had gathered and now had become a nation, were overcome by enemies and were scattered in the diaspora. They were, their, te- their temples were taken into ruin and they were scattered across the land. They couldn't be in communion anymore. They were slaves of Babylon. They were slaves of, of all of these different places. And there began to be a great cry that went up. And the cry was this, why do bad things happen to good people? And do you know what book, what writings came out of that question? Who's a really good person that bad things happen to in the Bible? Yes. So the book of Job was forged out of that question from those who were in diaspora. Why do bad things happen to good people? And all of a sudden, we have a challenge 
to the understanding that if you're really, really good, nothing bad will happen to you. And if you're really bad, you'll be cursed. We had a challenge to that. It was very different. And you have those voices of that ancient wisdom, those voices coming in from the back going, you know, all of Job's friends going, well, you know, if you, you should just repent, including his wife. Well, anyway, that's Job. So we had this challenge to this theology, but they weren't there yet. They didn't have to worry about that challenge because it still remained true. And in this chapter, what they're doing is they're saying, um, well, let me say this. Even though we feel like we're more spiritually sophisticated than that, we feel like how could they be, you know, how could they think that God would act that way? I wonder how many of you have ever in your life at some time or point said something like this, why me? I'm a good person. Or why them? Why did that have to happen to a child? Why did that happen to that person? They they go to church for heaven's sakes. Have you not ever thought that? Have you not ever said that? What you're doing is you are bearing out this theology that if you're really good, you're still putting it on yourself. I've earned the right to not be sick. I have earned the right to not suffer. And that theology was just turned on its head, and we've come to know that if that were true, Jesus did it all wrong because Jesus suffered. So... Anyway, we, so we don't judge them too harshly because that has carried on as well. So that's the setup of this, this, this understanding of blessing. And the setup is that this chapter reveals two facets of blessings that they, they uh, invested in and purchased into. And the first one was the blessing from Yahweh. And we can see that right away. The blessing, you're going to be, you're going to have many children and you will follow my statutes and I'll be your God and you'll be my people. So we have this blessing of promise. And the second one, though, is a blessing of prosperity. Prosperity that's judged by worldly standards. This is promised. We see the blessing, it's main import. It, chapter 26 is not so concerned with long-term hopes for what is going to be given in the distant future, it says, this is what he got right now. This is what happened to him. It celebrates the fact that, and it works out of prosperity and well-being in visible form. Isaac enjoys a great prosperity. It says he became a very, 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 very wealthy person. And, And he was, by worldly standards, would have been a success. He has a good harvest. Uh, Isaac finds water over and over and over again. In fact, at the very end, it says, guess what? Another well. The Philistines and the Abimelech, they come and they, they make a little bit of quarrel with them, but then they resolve it and they say, this person, you don't even touch this person. He's been blessed. The man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy, verse 13 says. So, That is their understanding of of it, but it very quickly shakes down. And in the everyday life of those people, I'm sure they they wondered what they had done wrong from time to time. So, um, So we come to this point now where we understand that the movement of chapter 26 compresses the sojourns of Isaac into a very brief account. And even though it's a very brief account, 
It takes us from a famine, which is another famine, all the way to, we discovered water again. So even in that brief, condensed chapters, hinge chapter, we discovered this broad scope of history. And it once again brings us and focuses down to the relationship that God has with the people. And the Isaac narrative invites a reflection on a world teeming with generously given life. And that abundant life is recognized as a blessing to those who receive it and who share it. So the chapter presents a worldview in which affirmation of the world and gratitude to God are held both in intention together. So when we think about Isaac, think about this very little about known person, but who became a hinge for the rest of the story. And you'll run into Isaac, and he plays a very marginal side, but, a, but an important part, too, for how the story progresses. So this is our, this is our study for today, and I'd like to uh, offer us a word of prayer. God, we thank you so much for leading us through, for guiding us, for being a God of promise and covenant and blessing and hope and redemption. These are our stories, O oh God, and as they play out in our everyday, as we ask questions, as we maybe are less honest with ourselves and with others, as we become our forefathers and foremothers, God, we know that you will steadily walk with us. We know that you will be by our side, loving us, nudging us, encouraging us, disciplining us. And we know, God, that with you, whenever we put our shovel of life into this good life of another person, we will strike gold. So thank you, God, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you all so much.